electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. Thank you, Wolf, Sarah, Mike, and welcome to CNBC's Fast Money. We started red hot and ended ice cold. The move that we saw yesterday could not be carried through. And in fact, the market taking an 800-point round trip, rallying right after the open, but then all session long continuing to lose ground. And in fact, when oil began to roll over at the close near 230, stocks began to roll over as well. In fact, the Dow Jones Industrial Average ended the day on the downside, on its lows, maybe not the best sign for tomorrow. Welcome, everybody. I'm Brian Sullivan, and we've got a full show for you. As always, Guy Adami, Tim Seymour, Dan Nathan, and Karen Feynman are your investment team today. Great to see everybody still social distancing here. Let's jump right into this, Guy Adami, because it looked like we would carry through Monday's momentum. We did not. Do you have anything you can put your finger on to say, this is why we rolled over. Yeah, pretty much everything we've been talking about for the last couple of weeks, Brian. I, you know, I'm not trying to be a wise guy here, but since you know that capitu- since that low we made a few weeks ago, and as it became somewhat clear the bounce was in play, we had been saying for quite some time that the logical level for this thing to bounce was 2790 or so in the S&P 500. We came within you know a little more than a percent of that today, so. In terms of what it did today, again, I'm not trying to be funny here, but it really didn't surprise us all that much because it did exactly what it needed to do technically. Traded up to that level, seemingly failed. That's a 25, 26 percent bounce from that low. The VIX never really gave up at the GOAT. VIX closed higher today. You mentioned an oil rolled over. So, you know, I never thought this was going to be a straight line higher. It made a lot of sense to get where we got today. And I think in terms of the rest of the month, and I'm not trying to speak in hyperbole here, but I think the next two days are very important for the market. Why is that, uh, Tim Seymour? And do you agree with Guy Adami? Well, first of all, he is a wise guy, so I, I do listen to him. And, and I think uh, when you consider some of the levels, uh, it, what, what, what seems to be the most you know, expected outcome was that this market was going to do what it has done so far. Uh, and I want to get out there and say that I don't know it has to do what everybody thinks it's going to do. And I, I feel like I've been saying that, uh, which is that uh, double retests, uh, checking the, the, the VIX to what it did in 2008 and 9 after it fell 50 percent and then uh, hit people in the face for 85, 90 percent before uh, pulling back and offering some safety, but not until we made fresh bottoms. So um, I, I think, uh, yes, very important couple of days. Also very important couple of days because of the concept of containment and, and what's going on in other parts of the world where we might be getting that preview into, uh, okay, so we don't really know where the global economy is going to be. We don't know where U.S. unemployment is going to go. We don't know where credit's going to decelerate to. Uh, we know that the Fed has done everything they can and essentially bought everything they possibly can by the second. 
Uh, and we now know that at least there are parts of the world that are getting on with it. And, and clearly, we don't know whether there's going to be a rebound. And I'll leave the health issues to the health experts. Um, from a market's perspective, that's what prices you to 27 to 2800 uh, on the S&P uh, points. And, and that's what I think is what we've done. So to answer your question yeah. about Guy, um, I think Guy's pointing out that, that people kind of expected some of this bounce. I don't think a lot of people expected it to be this extreme. And, and my view is I don't know that we have to retest the lows. I, I think we can consolidate a bit here, but I, I think the economic impact is something we're still waiting on. Yeah, and Dan, Nathan, I'm going to read a stat here that I, that I came across today, and it's from Baycrest Partners. I think this is really interesting. It kind of goes to what you were saying yesterday. Monday was the 32nd time in history that the S&P 500 gained more than 7% in a day. 22 of the 32 occurred between 1929 and 1933. Obviously, we're not saying there's a depression coming, but those are not the four years that you want to have these kind of statistical similarities to. Yeah, no doubt about it. I mean, Karen said some some interesting stuff last night to me that I gave some thought to after I had um, a, a little bit of a tirade there. I mean, she said that she would have felt more comfortable about buying the market yesterday if it was more flattish than, than up 7%, which I, I thought that was really interesting. And I think what she's saying is that she'd like to see the volatility settle down. And so, Sully, your data that you're showing, those 22 uh, times that the market had 7% rallies or greater was during the Great Depression after the, 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 the biggest crash in the stock market history at that point, yeah, we don't really want to be compared to those things. We want to see things settle down a, li a little bit. I know that a lot of strategists um, and investors, big time investors that have been on the network are pretty feeling pretty decent about the fact that the credit markets have kind of settled down a little bit, that at least the, the stimulus from the monetary front has done that. So it would be great to see the stock market settle down a little bit. I, I would add to Tim's point that you know, it seems like everybody is convinced that there will be a retest of the March 23rd low, which makes you think, OK, maybe that's not the case. Mike Wilson just said it on the closing bell. I saw in the halftime Tom Lee doesn't think that's going to happen either. So there's some smart people out there saying that th that's not exactly the case. Um, you know, the way I see it is, and like I said last night, it's going to be a time thing. We have a range now. The March 23rd low is 2200, and then we have guys 2790 to the upside. That's the range. If we get through either one of those, we're likely to see momentum in either one of those directions. I just mm -hmm. happen to think we're going to retest in the next few weeks or months to the downside. Okay, watching them. By the way, Dad, don't be hard on yourself. I've been watching you and Melissa the gang for years. You've had far larger tar tirades than you had last night. Don't be too tough on yourself. Uh, Karen, you know, on a, serious, on a serious note, you know, I feel like we're trading on some of the data from, obviously, the virus. Some positive data over the weekend. We had a nice big day yesterday. Unfortunately, we got some very negative data from New York today. And, and it feels like that's rolling over. Do you feel like that data is impacting the numbers in the market, the ones that we watch every day. I think, yeah, we clearly trade off Corona. I thought that actually the number, the death number was higher, just to, I mean, even talking about that statistic is very odd, but which is sort of a lagging indicator of new cases, I think is hopefully starting to flatten out. So you can sort of maybe see the light at the end of the tunnel a little bit, but for me, I wondering. I don't know where the light is at the end of the tunnel for the economy. I don't think we've even really begun to see how dark that can be. And 
to Dan's point, on the, on the VIX, actually, all the guys talked about the VIX, I think, like today, the market essentially was flat. I would much rather have had a flat day and then had the volatility index come down a lot as opposed to actually up today than this kind of action. This, you know, I'm long. That's what we do. We're long investors. And so this is a really difficult market to trade. I'd much rather buy things when they're down, not when they're just all over the place. So I think until we get any clarity on the economy, and I don't know when that'll happen, we might start to get a little hint next week. We'll hear from J.P. Morgan. That'll be really important. We'll also hear from Bank America, which is really important. They probably have the best sense out there of anyone of what are consumers doing? How do they feel? How do they feel about their money? Are they spending? How do their balance sheets look? That'll be really interesting to hear, but it'll only be through March 30th. So we're not going to see, maybe they'll, I hope they have some commentary on what they're seeing since then, but we don't have any light yet on where the economy is going to go. So that, yeah. that makes me somewhat nervous. It's a lot. We don't we don't know about how a lot of things are going to go. And God, Dami, I mean, the, the Institute for Health Evaluation and Metrics, which is sort of the official estimator from Washington, University of Washington, lowered, thankfully, lowered their estimates from hospital beds and fatalities just about two hours ago, brought it down by a lot, which is great news. One is too many, but bringing that number down is a lot. The market didn't either didn't see it or didn't seem to react to it. The reason I bring this up, Guy, is that obviously with the human tragedy going on, everybody right now ultimately is just sort of guessing. Are they not? Of course they are. I mean, most of a lot of it, you know, when you say guessing, you know, you're guessing off hopefully years of being in this business and trying to look back and trying to evaluate what you think is going on and what you think might happen. As I say all the time, I just have opinions. I don't know what's going to happen. You know, quite frankly... Nobody does, but we have a wealth of knowledge, I hope, we lean on. But let me just say this quickly. When the market reached its all-time high in the S&P, that 33.93 level, if you assume, let's just say, I think the consensus number for earnings was about 160 or so dollars, market was trading at 21 times earnings, 21 times earnings, which is a little bit rich. So the market was rich in the first place. You're going to get nowhere near 160 going forward, and quite frankly, I don't know in the near future when we're going to get anywhere close to that, aside from which the valuation, the, the multiple, I think, is wrong. So you have to start doing the math. Now, a lot of people think there's this huge pent-up demand on the back end of this thing. I hope that's the case. And obviously, I hope this ends sooner rather than later. I just don't think that pent-up demand is going to be there. And I think this takes a lot longer. So I'm more in dance camp on this one. Okay, well, let's bring in a guest, talk more now about this, and welcome in from the aforementioned J.P. Morgan, J.P. Morgan Asset Management, Phil Camparelli. Phil, thank you very much for joining us here on Fast Money. I, listen, it's, it's, I know it's difficult sometimes to talk about the markets and investing, given that everything that is going on, but also there's people out there that are scared. They are worried about their investments, along, of course, with their health. Maybe they're close to retirement, and they're watching the value go down. Are you at J.P. Morgan Asset Management seeing good values based on any kind of estimates you may have right now? And if so, where? Yeah, sure, Brian. So good to be with you guys here today. Can't wait to be with you again in person at some point. Um, so before today, we came into uh, trading today the best 10-day stretch since March of 2009. We were up close to 19% in that, in that time period. 
Markets don't go up by 19% in 10 days because of fundamentals. Okay, so throw those out the window. But what I think the market is really starting to believe and really wake up to here is that policymakers want to avoid the worst-case scenario. For the Fed, that would be a run on cash. And for the fiscal side, you know, that would be some sort of awful economic fallout without any shock absorbers. So starting, starting with the Fed, um, you know, they took rate, the speed and the size are just astonishing. It took them 17 trading days from an all-time high to get to zero rates, and they've already done more QE than they've done in parts of their QE programs of 08 and 09. The real key here, Brian, is going to be LIBOR rates. I think that's, that's so important. I think that's the latest positive development. Similar to 2008, if you go back to 08 and 09, when the market really started to find its footing, it's when LIBOR stopped going higher. That was when the actually the FDIC, I remember exactly where I was when the headline hit, that the FDIC would be guaranteeing bank paper for up to three years. That was a very important announcement. And I think that's some what we're seeing now. I think that's also going to limit volatility. Listen, LIBOR is the foundation for capital markets. You know, without without that, without business being able to fund themselves, and also that's a, a, an individual borrowing rate, you can't build on top of it. So that's kind of the first the first step here. And with the announcement yesterday with the commercial paper funding facility starting on April 14th, mm-hmm. you know, more, I think more stuff is yet to come. And on the fiscal side, I, I want to be really clear here. We're going to see shockingly crooked numbers when it comes to economic data. We saw two awful initial jobless claims numbers and the negative, negative 710,000 last week in payrolls. That's the reason why. Well, we well Phil, Phil, let me jump in here. Does the, the, let yeah. me jump in here. Does the data matter at all? That's the point we've been making. I mean, I'm not taking yeah. anything away from the numbers or our coverage, whatever, because behind every piece of jobs loss is a family, is a wife, mm-hmm. is a husband, is a spouse concerned about their future. But mm-hmm. these numbers are so all over the place. The estimates are millions sometimes. Yeah. From each other, do the numbers matter? Will earnings season, will earnings season matter at all? Listen, Brian, there's a range on GDP estimates of the second quarter. I, th- I thought it was a typo of negative eight to negative thirty. <laughs> right? So, I, I, what are you supposed to take from that? I think what this monetary and fiscal response has done has bought us the second quarter, and then you reassess, you reassess, right? And I think for us as multi-asset investors. We really needed balanced funds to start working. We really needed investment-grade corporate debt not to be falling without a bid. We really needed government bonds to be able to be a balance to the portfolio. There was a week in March there, Brian. We were really worried because cash was the only thing that mattered. And that, that has certainly changed. And I think that's what buys investors' time. You mentioned scared, right, in, in a scary time. I think this is really where you're supposed to lean on the durability of your portfolio. Because your answer should not be, should I be in cash or equity? You have to be able to weigh out the storm through diversification. And I think that's what the Fed has provided for. Phil Camparelli, J.P. Morgan Asset Management. I know you can't wait to be back on the set with everybody as well. Phil, you and the best, best to you and your family. Thank you very much for joining Thanks, us. Thanks, guys. Have a good one. All right, folks. Again, we've you know, take care, Phil. All right, tonight, again, we have got a special markets in turmoil. Listen, we have not seen this kind of stock market volatility since all the way back from 29 to 33, as we have talked about. We ended. We're up 800, ended the day down. Tune in tonight at 7 p.m. All right, coming up here on Fast Money, we have got the CEO of one of the hottest work-from-home stocks that is out there. The CEO of DocuSign will join us to talk about how their business has been going the last couple of months. And we're going to talk about Amazon. That's right. We have not forgotten some of these FANG stock stories. 
Mark Mahaney with a big new call on Amazon. We'll talk about it when Fast Money returns right after this. Wouldn't it be great to have all your investment and retirement accounts in one place? Yahoo Finance, our sponsor today, makes it easy. I use it to put my investment account and 401k accounts into one hub and get expert tips that help me confidently manage my money. For more than 25 years, Yahoo Finance has been the brand behind every great investor. Whether you're a seasoned investor or are looking for that extra guidance, Yahoo Finance gives you all the tools and data you need in one place. They're the number one finance destination, producing a holistic look at the financial news cycle, including breaking news, original editorial perspectives, analyst ratings, independent research, customizable charts, and so much more. Securely link your brokerage accounts for a unified view of your wealth, including 401k and other investments. A comprehensive perspective is what sets apart great investors, and it's how Yahoo Finance ensures you have the insight to look at your wealth in its entirety. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit the brand behind every great investor, yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. That's yahoofinance.com. All right, welcome back to Fast Money. We have got some breaking news in the auto insurance world. And for that, let's go to Frank Holland. Frank. Hey, Brian, you know, Geico's giving back $2.5 billion to its policyholders through credits. They're going to give a 15% discount to auto and motorcycle customers with policies up for renewal between tomorrow and October 7th. The company says that translates to about $150 for the average auto policyholder and about $30 for the average motorcycle policyholder. Allstate, it actually did something similar for about $600 million in policy credits for its customers. Brian, back over to you. Yeah, Data Trek Research, Frank, pointing out that, that searches for cancel car insurance have soared. You know why they're giving the money back. It's not out of the goodness of their heart. They're doing that so you don't cancel your insurance because if you cancel your insurance, you may not come back to who you had insurance with before. So maybe a smart business idea from Geico and Allstate. Thank you very, very much, much, Frank. Give and take, appreciate Brian. that. Thank you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Give and take. We'll see what happens. All right, Frank, thank you very much. All right, let's talk now about one of the hottest stay-at-home, work-from-home stocks out there. And this one is a real one that helps people get work done, and that is DocuSign. That stock, 59 bucks a couple months ago, 88, almost 88 bucks, closed today, down a little bit, but still year-to-date up 19% as the rest of the market sags. Let's bring in now Dan Springer. He is the CEO of DocuSign. Dan, Uh, The market is obviously very optimistic about your prospects. You probably have earnings coming up. There are certain things you cannot get into, I understand. But is your business, as far as you can tell us, tracking as optimistically as the market believes it is? Yeah, so here's what I can tell you, Brian. There's two big forces that everyone's been talking about for our business. One is that as people drive digital transformation and the work from home situation and it increases companies need to do more from a digital transformation standpoint, that benefits DocuSign for sure. At the same time, we see the risk to macroeconomic weakness that everyone's very concerned about. And that will, like all companies, have a negative impact. Right now, when we balance those two, we still feel pretty good about how our business is is going. And we're excited to continue to grow this business. As you know, last quarter, we came out in the high 30s, 39 percent revenue and 38 percent billings growth. We think that's going to be a good portend for the future as well. Yeah. And with your business, I mean, are you also seeing upgrades within the service, the add ons or whatever you might want to call them? I mean, you look at a company like Zoom, it's free. But then, of course, you want to you know, use it for more than 40 minutes. You got to pay the upgrade fees as professional versions. Have you seen existing customers also scale up their services with you? 
Yeah, absolutely. And remember, we have customers, we have almost 600,000 customers from the smallest businesses up to the largest sort of fortune companies. And we've seen across that, that there's more demand for volumes because people are doing more what we call use cases, more types of transactions that they want to take from any signature standpoint into their business today. And the other big growth driver for us, we get growth from the fact that people used to think about us primarily as a signature company. But now that we have the DocuSign Agreement Cloud, which is a much broader piece where we not only help people do the signing, but also the creation of agreements and the managing. So the DocuSign Agreement Cloud is leading to another set of growth drivers for us. You've got different, you've got real estate models, you've got legal models as well, Dan. I, we've talked a lot about weakness and concerns in the real estate market with mortgages. Are you seeing certain pockets of strength and weakness within your business? In other words, maybe you could give us some kind of an indication as to how the economy, the underlying economy really is going. Absolutely. So uh, real estate's an interesting one because while a lot of people are concerned there's going to be a slowdown, we haven't yet seen that uh, at DocuSign. We have done some things for some small realtors where we've created programs to give them attractive prices, pricing in coordination with the National Association of Realtors. Um, but if you look about the industries that are really doing well right now, you think about people that are in financial services, um, a lot of government uh, agencies are doing more. That includes things like, you know, the Atlanta, California, up to federal. So kind of all three uh, levels, state, uh, municipal, uh, as well as federal. Um, and we see a lot in healthcare and life sciences as well. So those are areas that I'd say we see particular strength. The areas probably not surprising to you where we see the biggest challenges are people in the travel, um, the hospitality space. Uh, we see a lot of those customers saying, we really see that we're going to be having a future headwind and, and they're probably going to be less aggressive growers uh, in the near term. And quickly, any issues with scalability, scaling up your business, any server issues? You've seen some companies just not able to handle this, this huge flood of new activity that came all of a sudden. Yeah, well, so, you know, DocuSign is a trust brand, right? So we make a huge focus on telling our customers they can count on us, both from a security standpoint and from an availability standpoint. And that's why we have been delivering sort of five nines availability, even though we've had this big increase in demand that you said. And I would just tell you, I think in addition to the infrastructure, it's a lot about the dedication of the team. And so our 4,000 DocuSigners may all be working from home right now, but they are just as dedicated as ever been to drive customer success. And a big part of that is being available. Okay. Dan Springer, CEO of DocuSign. It's been a hot stock and a tough year. Dan, thank you very much. Appreciate that. Best to you and yours. Karen thank Feynman, you. you love DocuSign. Did you like what you just heard from Dan Springer? I do. I do. I mean, I love the product is, uh, you know, especially a time like this, everyone working remotely, it's, it's a necessity. And I, I haven't used some of the add-on products. I see that as a, as a really interesting potential for them. Clearly, though, the stock is not cheap. I don't know if we'll see if things return to normal, if we'll see that valuation come in. But in terms of a product that absolutely adds value, I really like it a lot. Yeah, Karen, thank you very much. By the way, after hours, the stock sort of gaining back, not all of what it lost today, but a little bit. It's up about one and a half percent right there. All right. Coming up after the break, when, this, when we start to ease some of our social distancing restrictions and head back out, will we go to a restaurant? One analyst doesn't think so, and he's got a stock that he believes will benefit from how we're going to live over the next couple of months. There's the name. We'll talk more about it. Plus, why is Slack's debt offering genius, according to one of our traders. Find out next.
The spirit of performance defines Acura. And now, it's electric. Introducing the all-electric ZDX, Acura's most powerful SUV yet. While what powers their cars may change, the energy that makes Acura never will. Crafted using the same formula that brought them electrified supercars and multiple IMSA championships, the ZDX has track-tested performance that packs an energy all its own. With a premium Bang & Olufsen sound system and up to 313-mile range on a single charge and a Type S variant with an estimated 500 horsepower, the ZDX is everything they said electric could never be. It was built with the driver in mind, just like Acura has been doing since the beginning. We could talk all day, but the only way to experience this electric performance is to drive it yourself. Unlock the energy and order yours at Acura.com. What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. All right, welcome back. Let's get our latest update on the coronavirus figures from around the country. And for that, once again, we go to Frank Holland. Frank. Brian, here's the very latest. Democrats are accusing President Trump of waging a war against independent inspectors general after he effectively removed Glenn Fine as the head of the panel created by Congress to oversee how $2 trillion in stimulus money will be spent. Last week, the president fired the watchdog who helped spark impeachment proceedings against him last year. Patients with autoimmune diseases are running out of hydroxychloroquine as President Trump repeatedly touts the drug as a COVID-19 treatment. Doctors telling CNBC.com widespread shortages are emerging across many states. Amazon is testing a disinfectant fog at a Staten Island warehouse after recent protest over employees' safety. The practice is commonly used by airlines and by hospitals. And last month, Airbnb promised full cash refunds to qualifying travelers whose trips were impacted by the pandemic. Now, some of those customers are complaining the home share is making it difficult to get their money back. Several guests telling CNBC.com the company is only offering travel vouchers unless they can prove they're subject to travel restrictions. As always, for more coronavirus coverage, head to CNBC.com. Brian, back over to you. Well, Frank, Frank, thank you very much. All right, coming up after the break, we'll get back to the business of Fast Money, talk about three big analysts' call, including Netflix. Everybody's watching it, but has the stock come too far, too fast? Also, could GM run out of money by summer? We'll find out. Stick around. All right, welcome back to CNBC and Fast Money here. We are going to talk about three big analyst calls. We're going to do a little Fast Money inside of Fast Money, and we're going to start with one of the biggest companies and biggest stocks of them all, one of the FANG names. And that, of course, is Amazon, a very positive report from RBC Capital Markets. Mark Mahaney basically saying that this is going to be a stock you need to take a bet on, that online grocery trends obviously are growing now, but will be sticky even after this current situation is over. And Amazon, Dan Nathan, will also benefit from voice, from Alexa. I know you like the chart. Do you like the call? 
Yeah, I mean, listen, Mark has been a steadfast bull on Amazon and as it relates for years now. And as it relates to the chart, it's a pretty constructive chart. It got back up to 2000. That was where it was prior to its Q4 earnings. Um, you know, to me, it looks really set up to pop on the slightest good, good news of broad market news. That being said, there's no doubt about it. They are benefiting from all the horrible things that Americans are being forced to focus on now in this lockdown during this pandemic. Just, you know, it goes from AWS cloud usage to their um, access to Whole Foods and the logistics there. I mean, the list goes on and on and on. Obviously, the investments they've made in voice. So for years, at times when people like me have been trying to be critical about Amazon, about the lack of profitability, plowing that all into R&D, well, it's working yeah. out good for them. I'm not smart enough, Karen, to analyze stocks. But listen, we're all ordering online now when we can. Certainly, it's tough to get a slot on delivery, by the way, but we're trying to. But I wonder if when this is over, we're going to sort of reconnect with the brick and mortar side of the story. I mean, we I actually miss going to the store. Those folks are working their tails off, putting themselves at risk, doing it so we can have food. I wonder if there's another side to this Amazon story that we're not aware of yet. Well, I, I could bet that the mall reads certainly hope there is. I just wonder what brick and mortar are going to be left and how will they be doing business? Are they ever going to have the kind of footprint that they used to have? I mean, as to Amazon, I mean, they've clearly made themselves almost uh, a necessity for probably every home I know. But um, I don't know that I think people are, are that will be embedded in their lifestyle for a while. I just don't know, though, is that worth any price for the stock? One should pay as much as it doesn't matter because they're so important to your life. I don't really completely agree with that theory. So at some yeah. point, I, I think the valuation is just excessive. I don't know if we're there or not. Mark's been he's had a good call for a long time, but I, I'm not a buyer right here. Guy, what about you? Stocks traded well. I mean, it's bounced nicely. Technically, if you're into that, it's done everything really it should do. So I understand what Karen's saying 100 percent, and there's no reason to go flying into Amazon. But you have to admit, I mean, it's actually held up rather well. And, and maybe this environment lends itself to exactly what they're doing. The flip side, of course, being um, you have to wonder what the consumer looks like on the back end of this. So does their dominance get mitigated by the fact that the consumer might slow down in a meaningful way. I don't know the answer to that, but what I will tell you is, to Dan's point, stocks traded really well, so maybe it's trying to tell you something. All right, good call there on Amazon. Mark Mahaney, thank you very much. All right, let's move on to call number two, and that is Constellation Brands. And we're getting a note from UBS calling it dislocation too compelling, upgrade it to buy. Tim Seymour, you're a lot smarter than I am, but I'll summarize for the audience. Here's the call's basic thesis. <laughs> When we come out of this, we're not going to restaurants. We're going to sit in Central Park and sip some Constellation brand wine at a very socially acceptable distance. Well, um, we certainly uh, want to do that and, and look forward to doing that. Uh, I've got two more days of abstinence for Lent, by the way. I uh, can't wait for that. But Constellation Brands, you talk about the dislocation. <laughs> that was something where you, you actually saw this stock, just in terms of the charts, go from two to 210 down to almost 105. It was cut in half. If you think about their core business, um, they're actually going high single digits in terms of their beer business. They're going mid single digits in terms of their wine and spirits business. They're outflanking their competitors. They've seen consolidation in the industry and they've been winning. 
Um, if you think about actually the off-premises, on-premises consumption dynamics, so again, who's got the most exposure to the restaurant industry that we're all questioning uh, where and how quickly uh, it will come back? And so to that extent, they're more defensive than some of their other uh, wine and spirits peers because they're about 10 to 15 percent uh, off premise uh, versus about 15 to 20, uh, excuse me, on premise versus some of their peers. I like the stock. I'm long the stock. Uh, incredibly well run uh, and incredibly innovative and a global company that I think at some point Mexican production is actually a benefit for them, again, in terms of margin. And, and you're still hanging on. I know it's Lent. You're, 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 able to, you're able to do it, even with all that's going on, Tim Seymour. You're a better man than I am, and you're maybe one of the strongest people if I've not ever known. Now, that's amazing. Yeah. Well, if not now, Fair when? enough. So anyway, <laughs> d d don't, don't yeah, cry yeah. for me. <laughs> good, good stuff. Amazing, Tim. D Dan, Nathan, I, I won't ask you to comment on that part of it, but I will ask you to comment on the call. What do you think about UBS and the upgrade on Constellation? Yeah, I like it. I mean, I think what we're going to hear over the next few months and, and maybe the next few quarters is what do some of these businesses look like when we come out of the other side of this, when we get to normality? So I think as a thought exercise, especially at a time where we just don't know what the earnings and revenue impact, well, we know what the revenue impact for a lot of companies are, but we don't know what the earnings impact is going to be. Um, I think it makes sense to have these sort of thought exercises. And I think that, you know, the way Tim describes it, it's not just what is happening to their business, but what they are doing versus their peer group is really important. So you got a valuation that makes a lot of sense. I think you have a sense for what the worst case scenarios are to the downside um, as far as EPS, because this is a bit of a staple company. It is, at least for me, with their products. And unlike Tim, you know, I'm kind of manning up during this period um, and, and really kind of uh, partaking in the Constellations products. The entire galaxy of products. Dan, Nathan, I, I may or may not be with you on that, but we're all very proud of Tim. All right, let's move on now to the, uh, to the third call, and that is in the automobile sector. And this is a tough one here. Deutsche Bank saying it's going to get worse before it gets better on the automobile companies, Karen, I, listen, got a lot of friends in the Detroit area, love them all, love Michigan. What Deutsche Bank is basically saying is that Ford and GM could be sort of short of liquidity within four or five months. What do you make of this call? Yeah, I mean, and as a GM holder, um, it's a painful call. I've sold half our GM. I probably should have sold it all, but... Um, it's, so Ford is in a little bit of a more difficult spot than GM, but uh, they talk about 17 weeks of liquidity, which really isn't that much uh, when you think about how big of an endeavor it is to start up GM again. So, um, you know, this is kind of the, the balance sheet right now is good, but the cash burn is really not. So, uh, I mean, it's in a, better than an airline, but uh, it's, you know, it's hard for me to really be bullish on this one. I, I think I'd rather be in something else with either a better balance sheet or less burn. I hope, we get, I hope they can get it open before 17 weeks. That still leaves them a little bit of cushion, but yeah. really not, not very much. They, I hope they can get it open before that. But as a stock, it's really been yeah, a painful one. Yeah, it has. You, the investors, and also a lot of the employees. Guy Dami, your take on this call. Anything that we could take out of this that's somewhat optimistic at all? 
No, I can't speak intelligently about the the analyst uh, practices at Deutsche Bank. My sense is since they cut it to hold, they probably had it as a buy and they couldn't do the double dog dare and go from buy to sell. I'm making that assumption. It's probably right. Number one. Number two, where have they been for the last couple of years? Because quite frankly, when the market was going up every single day for eight years, GM couldn't get out of their own way in an environment where the autos were crushing it. GM and Ford were not. And we talked about that for years on this show. And, and, num and number three, I mean, this is not to cast aspersions. It's got nothing to do with GM. But you talk about a cautionary tale about bailouts. I mean, look where GM now is and look at where it was when it came out in 09 and whatever it was. I mean, it's really interesting to see. So it, I've said it for a long time. I understand the valuation call. I have not been a fan of GM. And this call does nothing to, to sway me the other way. If, if anything else, I'm waiting for Deutsche Bank in a week from now to cut them to sell with a $21 price target. And my sense is that's probably no, coming, that, Brian. It, it might be. Listen, I, I, I don't want to be too negative. I will say there is a positive story people are talking about, which is when we come out of this, car sales could take off because people are going to want to be alone in their car rather than taking New Jersey Transit or the Metro. I don't know if that thesis is going to play out, but people are talking about it, guys. Amazon, Constellation, and Deutsche Bank. Good stuff there. All right, coming up after the break, we're going to talk about, well, what else? Slack. They've got a big debt offering. Dan Nathan thinks it's a genius move. We don't hear that kind of language. Misspelled genius, which is probably not good. We can all use a chuckle, folks. By the way, 7 o'clock tonight, markets in turmoil. Special. We're back right after this. All right, welcome back to CNBC's Fast Money. Slack doing something that many people probably thought could not be done, and that is selling more debt. They were going to sell some debt. They increased that offering to $750 million. And Dan Nathan, you think that is a gen genius or generous move by Slack? Yeah, I mean, listen, Sully, when this company listed uh, on the NYSE last June, uh, they did a direct listing. They did not do an IPO. They did not sell shares and raise cash. So here they are less than a year later. If you're a fan of their direct listing, then you have to be a fan of them raising cash this way because they're doing it in a way where it's not dilutive to existing shareholders. So that's a huge bonus. They're putting some cash on their balance sheet at a time where we know, who knows what, what enterprise spending is going to be like. And I guess the main point I'll just say is who are their main competitors? They are massive, massive companies like Microsoft with Teams and, and Google with their productivity suite. So, you know, to me, this is a $13 billion market cap company. Maybe they're going to do a billion dollars in sales growing at 35% or so. They are going to need cash to compete with the likes of Microsoft and Google. So to me, I think this is genius for them. Um, it's not dilutive. It's great for shareholders. And, uh, you know, this is, this is a company that might have the ability to innovate and really pick at some of these behemoths. Yeah, Tim Seymour, though, the stock, I mean, like many, obviously, has not been that spectacular. What's your take on Slack? Uh, Dan's hit on the point. I mean, look, they, they just announced fiscal Q4 uh, about three weeks ago, um, and the numbers were fantastic in terms of their enterprise growth. It was up, you know, 49 percent, et cetera. Um, and yes, very, very smart, like everybody and their brother to be and sister to be raising uh, as much debt as you can right now. There was there was about nine 10 year issuances across the corporate space today. And then UK and Germany, I digress. 
Um, I, I do think that they gave some some fresh insight into and they cut their outlook to, I think, somewhere around 28, 29 percent. But we have to wait. I, I do think this is a case uh, where there will be some enterprise that was disruptive that will be seen as more efficient uh, and, and, and will still continue to grow, albeit not at those rates. Um, I don't chase this one at this valuation, however. Okay, don't chase it, so says Tim. Thank you very much. All right, by the way, we're going to talk about Disney coming up after the break because perhaps no major company, maybe no Dow company, has taken the hit from all sides like Disney has. We're going to talk about that with Julia Borston and get some views on Disney's double whammy. Stick around. All right, welcome back to CNBC's Fast Money. It has certainly been a difficult time for many of the media companies and Disney really getting a double whammy. Let's go right out out of West in Los Angeles to Julia Borston to talk about some tough more news for Disney and furloughs. Julia. Brian, that's right. Disney is the first of the media giants to announce they will be furloughing workers and not just at its theme parks, which are currently shut down, but across various divisions at the company. Now, Disney shares are off about 30 percent so far this year, while Comcast shares are down 18 percent, AT&T shares down 23 percent. Now, all three of these media giants are struggling with similar things, including the shuttering of film production and movie theaters, plus the cessation of all live sports right now. But Disney is unique in the weight of its theme parks, which is the business that could be the the last to bounce back. The parks division generated over a third of Disney's revenue last year. Now, in contrast, Comcast parks are 5.4% of its annual revenue, and AT&T doesn't have any parks. Plus, it just took out another $5.5 billion loan. Now, while Disney doesn't offer mobile or broadband, those services, which are more in demand right now, were 18% of Comcast's revenue last year and 44% of AT&T's revenue last year. And that doesn't include either of those companies' enterprise businesses. Now, back to Disney's furloughs, which are scheduled to start on April 19th. A source close to the situation tells me that understanding the cash flow limitations that Disney will be facing, senior executives willingly accepted pay cuts, but they were frustrated that those pay cuts did not delay the start of furloughs. Brian, back over to you. You know, Julie, we talked so much about Disney Plus when it came out, had a lot of hype. Obviously, sort of streaming is all the rage because that's kind of what we're doing. And we'll talk about Netflix in a moment. Why isn't Disney Plus getting a little more love here on the investment side? Is it simply because it's 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 a minuscule part of their business? Well, look, Disney Plus is a relatively small part of the business. It is going to be an increasingly important part of the business going forward. So that is a good point. But right now, Disney Plus is in investment mode. They're investing in content. They're investing in marketing. And they're still just rolling it out internationally. They just recently launched um, in France, having rolled out uh, elsewhere in Europe just late last month. So this is a young business for Disney, and it will take a while for Disney Plus to really get to scale. Yeah. But Disney Plus is certainly a bright spot. All of these companies focusing on that streaming direct-to-consumer business. Remember, AT&T owns HBO, which will be um, introducing HBO Max, scheduled to start in May. We'll see how that goes. Yeah, interesting timing there. Julia Borston, good to see you. Thank you very much, Julia. Karen, I mean, the thing about Disney, and maybe not the parks, because people might still want to be isolated when we sort of loosen up, whenever that might be. But, man, I can see the ESPN side of the business snapping back very quickly because when we do get live sports back on TV, 
maybe it won't have fans, the demand and the hunger is going to be huge. Uh, well, I don't know. Is a game that's played, for example, baseball, if the stories are true, they're going to play a, uh, a, to an empty uh, stadium. I don't know. I guess if you're a huge sports fan, you'll watch it anyway. I feel like the yes. fans are so much a part yes. of it. But, I mean, poor Disney, everything they have from cruises to parks to movies that come out in theaters. Nobody wants to be in a theater anymore. And the bounce back in the stock has been enormous. So I actually wouldn't chase it right here. I think that um, it's, uh, it's not, it's a, deserves a premium valuation, but I think in this world right now, it, it has kind of a premium valuation. Do you sell valuation. it, Karen, if you own it? Do you sell it if you own it, or do you just not buy it? If you, I, I think not, if you're a really long-term investor, then you probably hold it. But if you were lucky enough or smart enough to buy it when it was in the 80s, which was only, I guess, two weeks ago, it's, um, then I would sell it. Okay, Karen, thank you very much. Let's talk about another media company now. We're going to bring in Options Actions, Mike Coe, uh, Viacom CBS, perhaps one of, if not the hardest hit media stock, absolutely decimated. But Mike Coe, that perhaps maybe not deterring, or maybe it's the reason why in the options market, somebody's putting in a pretty bullish bet. Yeah, Brian, I think you're hitting right on it. It is probably because the stock has been so hard hit that maybe some people are going in and doing a little bit of bottom fishing here. We did see over three times the average daily call volume in Viacom today. Most of that activity was concentrated on the May 16 strike calls. They were paying about $1.80 for those. Ultimately, over a couple thousand of them traded. <clears throat> now, consider for a second just how much that premium is. That's more than 10% of the current stock price. And just to break even, the stock would need to be up over 21% by May expiration. That's a little over five weeks from today. So that's obviously a big bet and a big bullish move that would be expected. But take a look at how much the stock has declined. It's about a third of its value from the beginning of the year. This thing was over 60 bucks a share uh, going back to 2017. So I think what we're looking at here is just a highly volatile stock and someone's willing to risk just over 10% of the share price betting on a little bit of a rebound. But that wouldn't get us back anywhere close to where it began the beginning of this year. All right, Mike Coe, thank you very much. Tough times there for Viacom CBS. All right, coming up after the break, talking about sports. There is a report out there about baseball. Karen talked about it. You heard Tim saying, yeah, we're going to ask Tim and Guy what they think about how baseball might come back. And if you haven't heard the story, you're going to want to. It's true. It's a little weird. We're back right after this. All right, welcome back, loyal viewer. You know that Tim and Guy, they love the sport of baseball. Of course, we're missing all the sports now, but there is some some potential hope out there. Guy and Tim, I'm sure you saw the story. The AP and ESPN reporting that Major League Baseball is considering <clears throat> coming back in May, but all the games would be played in Arizona with no – literally all the games, all the teams in Arizona with no fans. Guy Adami, would you rather see that or wait till baseball can come back sort of in a normal state? No, I think it's important for baseball to come back. I mean, you remember post 9-11 – uh, I'm not a Met fan, and I'm going to rail on him in a second, but that Mike Piazza home run at Shea against the Braves, I mean, it meant a lot to a lot of people. But this is great for the Mets. I think this is a huge advantage because playing in front of an empty, empty stadium is what they do in a normal season. So they should really stand <laughs> to do very well in that environment. 
Tim, he's taking uh, a little so, bit of dig at the Mets, but Brian, what do you make I'll, of the I'll plan? Ju- Would you like to see it? Come on. Yeah. Uh, by the way, Arizona, also 2001, one of the great World Series of all times that was also important for the country after 9-11 and unfortunately didn't work out for the Yankees. I actually was rooting for my New York team because that's how I roll. Um, the would you rather here, uh, I think the first question as a, as a citizen of the country is, why should baseball be allowed to go back to work? I think there's a lot of people that might need that paycheck more. But, but leaving that aside... Um, I, I, I think it's, as a baseball lost, fan, yeah. weighing seven inning games, doubleheaders, et cetera, I think this is something that I would you know, prefer to, to, to probably take. Yeah. It's better than nothing. Yeah, something. Hey, by the way, as a San Diego Chargers football fan, my team has no home games so, and has it for two years. So, guys, we had to talk about that. Have a little fun and some tough times. Let's do final trades now. Tim, why don't you kick it off? Yeah, I just think Disney is one of those companies that we talk about as not only a great American company, but one of those companies that you want to buy uh, when there's a lot of uncertainty, because this is a place where you want to own it, despite the theme parks and what's going on with their ad business. Uh, Buy Disney here. You'll be happy in the medium term, not the long term. Karen. Yeah, I don't think the route in credit is over. So my trade's short HYG. All right, Dan and Guy, we'll get your final trades coming up here. We're going to run out of time. We appreciate it. Great job, everybody, under tough circumstances. Again, thanks for watching Fast Money. See you tomorrow night. Mad with Jim starts right now. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. So you need a business partner just like you. Like FedEx, who understands your passion for serving your customers because they have the same commitment towards you. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. What's more, FedEx Ground is faster to more locations than UPS Ground. Trust FedEx for timely deliveries. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx.